Chapter Seven, Part Two, of the Riddle of the Universe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Craster. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel, translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter Seven, Part Two. Four. Consciousness presentation in the cerebral cells. With the higher stage of development of the animal organization, consciousness arises as a special function of a certain central organ of the nervous system. As the presentations are conscious, and as special parts of the brain arise for the association of these conscious presentations, the organism is qualified for those highest psychic functions which we call thought and reflection, intellect and reason. Although the tracing of the phyletic barrier between the older unconscious and the younger conscious presentation is extremely difficult, we can affirm with some degree of probability that the evolution of the latter from the former was polyphyletic. Because we find conscious and rational thought not only in the highest forms of the vertebrate stem, man, mammals, birds, and a part of the lower vertebrates, but also in the most highly developed representatives of other animal groups, ants and other insects, spiders and the higher crabs among the articulata, cephalopods among the mollusca. The evolutionary scale of memory is closely connected with that of presentation. This extremely important function of the psychoplasm, the condition of all further psychic development, consists essentially in the reproduction of presentations. The impressions in the bioplasm which the stimulus produced as sensations and which became presentations in remaining are revived by memory. They pass from potentiality to actuality. The latent potential energy of the psychoplasm is transformed into kinetic energy. We may distinguish four stages in the upward development of memory corresponding to the four stages of presentation. 1. Cellular memory. Thirty years ago, Ewald Herring showed memory to be a general property of organized matter in a thoughtful work and indicated the great significance of this function, to which we owe almost all that we are and have. Six years later, in my work on the perigenesis of the plastidule, or the undulatory origin of the parts of life, an experiment in the mechanical explanation of elementary evolutionary processes, I developed these ideas and endeavored to base them on the principles of evolution. I have attempted to show in that work that unconscious memory is a universal and very important function of all plastidules, that is, of those hypothetical molecules or groups of molecules which Nigeli has called micellae, other bioplasts, and so forth. Only living plastidules as individual molecules of the active protoplasm are reproductive and so gifted with memory that is the chief difference between the organic and inorganic worlds. It might be stated thus, heredity is the memory of the plastidule while variability is its comprehension. The elementary memory of the unicellular protist is made up of the molecular memory of the plastidules or micellae of which its living cell body is constructed. 
as regards the extraordinary performances of unconscious memory in these unicellular infinitely varied and regular formation of their defensive apparatus their shells and skeletons in particular the diatoms and cosmaria among the protophytes and the radiolaria and the thalamophora among the protozoa afford an abundance of most interesting illustrations in many thousand species of these protists the specific form which is inherited is relatively constant and proves the fidelity of their unconscious cellular memory two histionic memory equally interesting examples of the second stage of memory the unconscious memory of tissues are found in the heredity of the individual organs of plants and the lower nerveless animals sponges etc this second stage seems to be a reproduction of the histionic presentations that association of cellular presentations which sets in with the formation of synobia in the social protists three in the same way we must regard the third stage the unconscious memory of those animals which have a nervous system as a reproduction of the corresponding unconscious presentations which are stored up in certain ganglionic cells in most of the lower animals all memory is unconscious moreover even in man and the higher animals to whom we must ascribe consciousness the daily acts of unconscious memory are much more numerous and varied than those of the conscious faculty we shall easily convince ourselves of that if we make an impartial study of a thousand unconscious acts we perform daily out of habit and without thinking of them in walking speaking writing eating and so forth four conscious memory which is the work of certain brain cells in man and the higher animals is an internal mirroring of very late development the highest outcome of the same psychic reproduction of presentations which were mere unconscious processes in the ganglionic cells of our lower animal ancestors the concatenation of presentations usually called the association of ideas also runs through a long scale from the lowest to the highest stages this too is originally and predominantly unconscious instinct only in the higher classes of animals does it gradually become conscious reason the psychic results of this association of ideas are extremely varied still a very long unbroken line of gradual development connects the simplest unconscious association of the lowest protists with the elaborate conscious chain of ideas of the civilized man the unity of consciousness in man is given at its highest consequence hume condillac all higher mental activity becomes more perfect in proportion as the normal association extends to more numerous presentations and in proportion to the order which is imposed on them by the criticism of pure reason in dreams where this criticism is absent the association of the reproduced impressions often takes the wildest forms even in the work of the poetic imagination which constructs new groups of images by varying the association of the impressions received and in hallucinations etc they are often most unnaturally arranged and seem to the prosaic observer to be perfectly irrational this is especially true of the supernatural forms of belief the apparitions of spiritism and the fantastic notions of the transcendental dualist philosophy though it is precisely these abnormal associations of faith and of revelation that have often been deemed the greatest treasure of the human kind see chapter 16
the antiquated psychology of the middle ages which however still numbers many adherents considered the mental life of man and that of the brute to be two entirely different phenomena the one is attributed to reason the other to instinct in harmony with the traditional story of creation it was assumed that each animal species had received a definite unconscious psychic force from the creator at its formation and that this instinct of each species was just as unchangeable as its bodily structure lamarck proved the untenableness of this error in eighteen hundred and nine by establishing the theory of descent and darwin completely demolished it in eighteen hundred and fifty nine he proved the following important theses with the aid of his theory of selection one the instincts of species show individual differences and are just as subject to modification under the law of adaptation as the morphological features of their bodily structure two these modifications generally arising from a change of habits are partly transmitted to offspring by heredity and thus accumulate and are accentuated in the course of generations three selection both artificial and natural singles out certain of these inherited modifications of the psychic activity it preserves the most useful and rejects the least adaptive four the divergence of psychic character which thus arises leads in the course of generations to the formation of new instincts just as the divergence of the morphological character gives rise to new species darwin's theory of instinct is now accepted by most biologists romanus has treated it so ably and so greatly expanded it in his distinguished works on mental evolution in the animal world that i need merely refer to it here i will only venture the brief statement that in my opinion there are instincts in all organisms in all the protists and plants as well as in all the animals and in man though in the latter they tend to disappear in proportion as reason makes progress at their expense the two chief classes of instincts to be differentiated are the primary and secondary primary instincts are the common lower impulses which are unconscious and inherent in the psychoplasm from the commencement of organic life especially the impulses to self-preservation by defense and maintenance and to the preservation of the species by generation and the care of the young both these fundamental instincts of organic life hunger and love sprang up originally in perfect unconsciousness without any cooperation of the intellect or reason it is otherwise with the secondary instincts these were due originally to an intelligent adaptation to rational thought and resolution and to purposive conscious action gradually however they became so automatic that this other nature acted unconsciously and even through the action of heredity seemed to be innate in subsequent generations the consciousness and deliberation which originally accompanied these particular instincts of the higher animals and man have died away in the course of the life of the plastidules as in abridged heredity the unconscious purpose of action of the higher animals for instance their mechanical instincts thus come to appear in the light of innate impulses we have to explain in the same way the origin of the a priori ideas of man they were originally formed empirically by his predecessors in the superficial psychological treatises which ignore the mental activity of animals and attribute to man only a true soul we find him credited also with the exclusive possession of reason and consciousness this is another trivial error 
still to be found in many a manual nevertheless which the comparative psychology of the last forty years has entirely dissipated the higher vertebrates especially those mammals which are most nearly related to man have just as good a title to reason as man himself and within the limits of the animal world there is the same long chain of the gradual development of reason as in the case of humanity the difference between the reason of a goethe a kant a lamarck or a darwin and that of the lowest savage a vedda an akka a native australian or a patagonian is much greater than the graduated difference between the reason of the latter and that of the most rational mammals the anthropoid apes or even the papiomorpha the dog or the elephant this important thesis has been convincingly proved by the thoroughly critical comparative work of romanus and others we shall not therefore attempt to cover that ground here nor to enlarge on the distinction between the reason and the intellect as to the meaning and limits of these concepts philosophic experts give the most contradictory definitions as they do on so many other fundamental questions of psychology in general it may be said that process of the formation of concepts which is common to both these cerebral functions is confined to the narrower circle of concrete proximate associations in the intellect but reaches out to the wider circle of abstract more comprehensive groups of associations in the work of reason in the long gradation which connects the reflex actions and the instincts of the lower animals with the reason of the highest intellect precedes the latter and there is the fact of great importance to our whole psychological treatise that even these highest of our mental faculties are just as much subject to the laws of heredity and adaptation as are their respective organs fleischig pointed out in eighteen hundred and ninety four that the organs of thought in man and the higher mammals are those parts of the cortex of the brain which lie between the four inner sense centers see chapters ten and eleven the higher grade of development of ideas of intellect and reason which raises man so much above the brute is intimately connected with the rise of language still here also we have to recognize a long chain of evolution which stretches unbroken from the lowest to the highest stages speech is no more an exclusive prerogative of man than reason in the wider sense it is a common feature of all the higher gregarious animals at least of all the articulata and the vertebrates which live in communities or herds they need it for the purpose of understanding each other and communicating their impressions this is affected either by touch or by signs or by sounds having a definite meaning the song of the bird or of the anthropoid ape hylobates the bark of the dog the neigh of the horse the chirp of the cricket the cry of the cicada are all species of animal speech only in man however has that articulate conceptual speech developed which has enabled his reason to attain such high achievements comparative philology one of the most interesting sciences that has arisen during the century has shown that the numerous elaborate languages of the different nations have been slowly and gradually evolved from a few simple primitive tongues wilhelm humboldt bopp schleicher steinthal and others august schleicher of jena in particular has proved that the historical development of language takes place under the same phylogenetic laws as the evolution of other physiological faculties and their organs romanus in eighteen hundred and ninety three has expanded this proof and amply demonstrated that human speech also differs from that of the brute only in degree of development not in essence and kind the important group of psychic activities which we embrace under the name of emotion 
plays a conspicuous part both in theoretical and practical psychology. From our point of view, they have a peculiar importance from the fact that we clearly see in them the direct connection of cerebral functions with other physiological functions, the beat of the heart, sense, action, muscular movement, etc. They therefore prove the unnatural and untenable character of the philosophy which would essentially dissociate psychology from physiology. All the external expressions of emotional life which we find in man are also present in the higher animals, especially in the anthropoid ape and the dog however varied their development may be. They are all derived from the two elementary functions of the psyche, sensation and motion, and from their combination in reflex action and presentation. To the province of sensation, in a wide sense, we must attribute the feeling of like and dislike, which determines the emotion, while the corresponding desire and aversion, love and hatred, the effort to attain what is liked and avoid what is disliked, belong to the category of movement. Attraction and repulsion seems to be the sources of will, that momentous element of the soul which determines the character of the individual. The passions which play so important a part in the psychic life of man are but intensifications of emotions. Romanus has recently shown that these also are common to man and the brute. Even at the lowest stage of organic life, we find in all the protists those elementary feelings of like and dislike revealing themselves in what are called their tropisms, in the striving after light and darkness, heat or cold, and in their different relations to positive and negative electricity. On the other hand, we find at the highest stage of psychic life, in civilized man, those finer shades of emotion, of delight and disgust, of love and hatred, which are the mainsprings of civilization and the inexhaustible sources of poetry. Yet a connecting chain of all conceivable gradations unites the most primitive elements of feeling in the psychoplasm of the unicellular protists with the highest form of passion that rule in the ganglionic cells of the cortex of the human brain. That the latter are absolutely amenable to physical laws was proved long ago by the great Spinoza in his famous Statics of Emotion. The notion of will has as many different meanings and definitions as most other psychological notions, presentation, soul mind and so forth sometimes will is taken in the wildest sense as a cosmic attribute as the world is will and presentation of schopenhauer sometimes it is taken in its narrowest sense as an anthropological attribute the exclusive prerogative of man as descartes taught for instance who considered the brute to be a mere machine without will or sensation in the ordinary use of the term will is derived from the phenomenon of voluntary movement and is thus regarded as a psychic attribute of most animals. But when we examine the will in the light of comparative physiology and evolution, we find, as we do in the case of sensation, that it is a universal property of living psychoplasm. The automatic and the reflex movements which we observe everywhere, even in the unicellular protists, seem to be the outcome of inclinations which are inseparably connected with the very idea of life. Even in the plants and lowest animals, these inclinations or tropisms seem to be the joint outcome of the inclinations of all the combined and individual cells. But when the tricellular reflex organ arises, and a third independent cell, the psychic or ganglionic cell, is interposed between the sense cell and the motor cell, we have an independent elementary organ of will. In the lower animals, however, this will remains unconscious. 
it is only when consciousness arises in the higher animals as a subjective mirror of the objective though internal processes in the neutroplasm of the psychic cells that the will reaches that highest stage which likens it in character to the human will and which in the case of man assumes in common parlance the predicate of liberty its free dominion and action become more and more deceptive as the muscular system and the sense organs develop with a free and rapid locomotion entailing a correlative evolution of the brain and the organs of thought the question of the liberty of the will is the one which has more than any other cosmic problem occupied the time of thoughtful humanity the more so that in this case the great philosophic interest of the question was enhanced by the association of most momentous consequences for practical philosophy for ethics education law and so forth emile dubois-raymond who treats it as the seventh and last of his seven cosmic problems rightly says of the question affecting everybody apparently accessible to everybody intimately involved in the fundamental conditions of human society vitally connected with religious belief this question has been of immeasurable importance in the history of civilization there is probably no other subject of thought on which the modern library contains so many dusty folios that will never again be opened the importance of the question is also seen in the fact that kant put it in the same category with the questions of the immortality of the soul and belief in god he called these three great questions the indispensable postulates of practical reason though he had already clearly shown them to have no reality whatever in the light of pure reason the most remarkable fact in connection with this fierce and confused struggle over the freedom of the will is perhaps that it has been theoretically rejected not only by the greatest critical philosophers but even by their extreme opponents and yet it is still affirmed to be self-evident by the majority of people some of the first teachers of the christian churches such as st augustine and calvin rejected the freedom of the will as decisively as the famous leaders of pure materialism holbach in the eighteenth and buchner in the nineteenth century christian theologians deny it because it is irreconcilable with their belief in the omnipotence of god and in predestination god omnipotent and omniscient saw and willed all things from eternity he must consequently have predetermined the conduct of man if man with his free will were to act otherwise than god had ordained god would not be almighty and all-knowing in the same sense leibniz too was an unconditional determinist the monistic scientists of the last century especially laplace defended determinism as a consequence of their mechanical view of life the great struggle between the determinists and the indeterminists between the opponent and the sustainer of the freedom of the will has ended today after more than two thousand years completely in favor of the determinist the human will has no more freedom than that of higher animals from which it differs only in degree not in kind in the last century the dogma of liberty was fought with great philosophical and cosmological arguments the nineteenth century has given us very different weapons for its definitive destruction the powerful weapons which we find in the arsenal of comparative physiology and evolution we now know that each act of the will is as fatally determined by the organization of the individual and as dependent on the momentary condition of his environment as every other psychic activity 
the character of the inclination was determined long ago by heredity from parents and ancestors the determination to each particular act is an instance of adaptation to the circumstances of the moment wherein the strongest motive prevails according to the laws which govern the statics of emotion ontogeny teaches us to understand the evolution of the will in the individual child phylogeny reveals to us the historical development of the will within the ranks of our vertebrate ancestors end of part two of chapter seven read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama